Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social, a strategic marketing agency and operational consulting firm for behavioral health. Today, we are speaking with J.D. Kalmanson. He is the owner of a variety of different behavioral health organizations, but today we're going to focus on one aspect of their business, which is whatever you want to call it, complementary treatment modalities, alternative treatment modalities, things like ketamine, neurofeedback, TMS, etc., Um, Before we talk about that, let's hear from our wonderful sponsors. As all regular listeners of the show are aware, I'm a huge advocate of clinical outcomes tracking, so I'm proud to have my favorite tracking software, Track9, as a sponsor of this show. Track9 Informatics is a measurement-based care and data analytics tool for substance use disorder and mental health treatment across the continuum of care. It assesses a combination of pathology and resilience factors scientifically proven to be most critical to client success. Track9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating various client symptoms so you can match the clinician best suited to the client's specific needs. Track9 also provides much-needed feedback-informed care loops to help clinicians themselves improve. What's really interesting is that Track9 learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure and provides treatment failure risk alerts, which can help lower AMAs by as much as 39%. If you listen to my podcast with owner Jared Dempsey, he talks about how different facilities achieve different results based on internal talent, systems, and the unique characteristics of their patient population. Track9 displays program performance versus national averages, which you can use to identify improvement opportunities and support payer negotiations. To learn more, visit www.track9.com. That's T-R-A-C and the number 9.com. Okay, so as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about different modalities, uh, complementary modalities. Often these are standalone programs like TMS or neurofeedback or ketamine, uh, things that can be provided after residential treatment levels of care, um, often within a, a doctor's office. There's usually special machines that are used for some of these, and they're quite expensive to um, buy them or lease them. And so this is something we haven't talked about on the show before. Uh, it's something that I am not overly familiar with, so I really wanted to bring in a guest that had experience of actually implementing it from a business model standpoint and walking through not just efficacy, but also you know things like costs and reimbursements. Um, so I really appreciate JD taking the time to join us and walk through his experience as they've built out these different levels of care. So with that, let's jump in. Welcome to the show, JD. I really appreciate you taking the time to connect today. Uh, can you talk to us and tell us a bit about yourself and your organization? Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. So my background uh, has been for well over a decade in social outreach and seeing a lot of the ills of society ultimately traced down to deeper unresolved mental health challenges, whether it was that uh, the prison systems, I did some chaplaincy across 40 correctional facilities, seeing addiction up close. Uh, I started to realize that, you know, this is a space that there is so much potential for because a lot of it was stagnant. And this was back in 2016. And that's when we decided to, uh, to open up our first chemical dependency program, Renewal Health Group, in 2016. 
And then we follow that up with a primary mental health organization, Montier Behavioral Health. And uh, we've recently opened a third organization dedicated to the uh, psych stable stabilization, acute care space. But uh, yeah, that's a little bit about what we've been doing for the last several years. So it's pretty impressive. I, um, you know, talking to you and your partner, Elliot, you guys are trying to take on a lot of different aspects of behavioral health, you know, and really trying to provide all the services that patients potentially need, which is definitely challenging. So I applaud you on, you know, being willing to make that commitment and, and go that route to provide all these different services because they are different models, right? But today I wanted to really kind of talk about the aspect that you guys are doing around alternative or maybe complementary treatments for SUD and mental health. So you've got the biofeedback, you've got ketamine, um, you've got different modalities that you guys are providing that we haven't talked about on the show before. So I was interested if you could kind of talk us through what you're currently offering in the facilities that you've got running right now. Absolutely. And the word alternative and complementary, I, I, I... I would love to discuss uh, each of them separately a little bit, but first we'll start with alternative. So uh, for the longest time, the treatment space has sort of been regurgitating or engaging in the same practices and largely at the therapeutic and holistic level. Today, what's amazing about you know, technological advancement is on the non-invasive neurological side, there is a whole new track, treatment-resistant depression, for example, where folks who don't necessarily have the motivation or the wherewithal just yet at this juncture of their treatment to deal with some of the thornier issues that have been plaguing them in their lives. You have neurological interventions such as neurofeedback that are FDA approved for certain diagnoses and EMDR with regards to the trauma, although you do want to sort of make sure that the client is emotionally stable before they embark on the EMDR. And one of my favorites, which is TMS, the transcranial magnetic stimulation, which essentially takes a MRI of the brain and the section of the brain that is supposed to be producing the serotonin, which somebody who has chronic depressive disorder, you'll see on the CAT scan, on the MRI, you'll see a, uh, an absence of neurons, of neuroactivity. And through magnetic stimulation outwardly induced over a series of 20 to 30 sessions or so, the stimulation begins to take effect where neuroactivity uh, begins to form through those pathways and clients to see really incredible results. So there's this whole new wave of, uh, you know, cutting edge, you know, neurological intervention. And then you also have the ketamine assisted therapy through, um, you know, whether it's intranasal and spravato or, or IV, but that's a little bit tricky uh, within the addiction community, just because it, it is a mind altering substance in and of itself, similar to, uh, some of the other medications for, for, for a few hours at a time. But these alternative methods and interventions, we find that they're so important because, you know, when people talk about custom treatment, I feel like more often than not, they're like a tailor who takes the material and says, I'm going to custom make you a suit, but really they're just referring to the custom measurements because they've only got one material that they're working with. Um, if you really want to do a custom suit, then you want to get understand from your client whether they favor wool or linen, what type of wool or cotton, what are their needs, what's the functionality of the suit. And that's sort of the way we see treatment where it's not just taking the same modalities and applying them and integrating them into the client's various respective storylines. But more importantly, the pathways that led clients to our doors, the pathways that led them to addiction, 
vary and differ so strongly. And that's something that we've been championing with our discovery assessment, because we've found through our experiences that although there's overlap, but there are three distinct sort of pathways and causations that lead people to using mind-altering substances in a dangerous way. For some, it has to do with circumstances, circumstantial in the sense that, you know, they've uh, they had an operation, they got hooked on painkillers, they can't seem to get off of it. And then once the doctor, doctor stops prescribing, they resort to using other illicit substances. And for other folks, there's nothing to do with circumstances. You know, they, 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 they have uh, bipolar or they have other uh, unresolved mental health diagnoses that they're not properly treating. And that leads to a lot of pain. It leads to a lot of uh, a pent up, uh, you know, unhealthy uh, sort of uh, behaviors, and they look for a drug to just alleviate that pain, to numb that pain. And for others, it's a, a spiritual malady of sorts. They're, it's existential. They're, they're, they're feeling very empty in life. And so we sort of classify them into different categories. And depending on the source and the origin, that will predominantly help inform us of what to focus on in the treatment itself. And it will dramatically impact what aftercare ought to look like. So going back for a second, you know, for a lot of folks, the, the, the alternative methods are, are very important. They're finding this very helpful and it's, it's definitely giving them a strong boost to be able to stabilize and then, uh, then approach their treatment with their therapist uh, armed with much more confidence and a lot less distractions because their symptoms of depression and anxiety have been largely reduced. So I love that. And let's let's go on a little bit of a digression there off the complementary treatment approaches, because I, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, you and I were having this conversation and you kind of a personal belief of mine is that you understand if you understand the etiology of the addiction or behavioral health issue that should inform your treatment. You know, I've had discussions with Bill White on this kind of back and forth. And his perspective is there isn't necessarily research to back that up yet, but it makes total sense. Right. If you can figure out the reason why someone is sad, you can help them become happier. So, you know, we assume that the same logically should apply to other behavioral health um, issues and emotions and moods. So you guys have these three buckets. And what I also think is interesting there is it's a simplification from a process standpoint, right? Because we always talk about individualizing and tailoring treatment, but that is actually really hard to do. If you just say, hey, you know, here, clinician or therapist, figure out what's going on and then tailor a treatment plan. There's a million avenues and directions you could go where if, if you can say, hey, we have these three buckets and these three buckets, if we identify them, then there are these three potential paths that we should build for their treatment plan. So can you kind of talk a little bit about one, how you came up with that discovery model and then two, how you've applied it and seen results with the patients in your care? How we came up with it was really looking at it from an objective standpoint and seeing that Everything from the definition of what sobriety really looks like, all the way to whether AA is a must, a necessity, or is totally irrelevant, um, bringing MAT, MAT into the picture, and whether you, know, you consider a relapse to be strictly the drug of choice or any other substance. So you have this sort of complete confusion and fog about objective sort of standards of what recovery looks like. And then you start realizing, well, there's a reason that there's such a significant discrepancy about some of the elementary goals that we're looking for when we talk about sobriety and recovery, because it really has to do with the individual at the individual level. 
And therefore, relativity is going to be a very important feature in how you define sobriety, relapse, and, and what aftercure ought to look like. So, you know, you see this constantly that some folks will come into treatment for uh, benzos or for opioids, but they'll be fine with, you know, uh, smoking marijuana recreationally. Others, if they have a beer after, uh, you know, 10, 15 years of sobriety, they become very fearful that they, uh, they might fall off the wagon. And in some rooms of AA, they might treat them like that. So you have this sort of really broad, wide array of definitions, criterias, and, and therefore you have to stop and pause and say, there's a reason for this. And perhaps it's because even though their symptoms might be similar, but they actually are struggling with different disorders, albeit manifest in a uniform symptomology. And that's what started us in asking a lot of very detailed questions, trying to ascertain whether, for example, the circumstantial addict, I mean, you know, they're typically not going to be exhibiting some of the underlying symptoms of what would lead them and propel them to using mind-altering substances at a younger age. It has to do with certain circumstances. Whereas you have other folks who they'll tell you that these feelings of emptiness, this vacuum and void, they felt different when they were eight years old, nine years old, way before they had their first drink. And their first drink was the only time in their life where they were able to shut those feelings down. So clearly they were suffering from something that wasn't circumstantial and preceded a lot of the experiences that lead people uh, you know, toward that path. So asking a lot of very pinpointed questions be was, became very revealing about the sort of answers we were getting and how the, uh, the, the, the symptoms, although similar, really represented nothing about what was the underlying struggle underneath it all. Now, how that impacts treatment is, I mean, well, let's, let's just talk broadly speaking for a second, because, you know, we can really, you know, analyze and explore this for hours, but let's just talk about somebody who has had unresolved mental health issues, whether it's depression and anxiety or trauma, and the way they cope is through mind-altering substances. So the drug abuse becomes a coping mechanism so then what we have to really focus on is dealing with some of those primary under health, underlying mental health issues. Aftercare is going to look like making sure they're maintaining a residual relationship with the clinician who inspired them, whether it's psychiatrically continuing to adhere to the program that their psychiatrist has, has set up for them, or whether it's some of these alternative methods to make sure that they're following up with the TMS or with the neurobiofeedback or with the EM, EMDR or with psychodrama if it has to do with some of those earlyhood child, early childhood traumas. But the, 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 the key is that their aftercare is gonna predominantly focus and revolve around their mental health program. Whereas for somebody who it was more of a, you know, a, a sort of an existential void and vacuum. And when they joined the AA program, they felt whole for the first time. When they engage in acts of service, they feel like they're giving back to the community and they feel like they have a reason and a purpose. It's logotherapy, Viktor Frankl, they have their why to live. So for them, aftercare really ought to look like keeping up that purpose-driven lifestyle and keeping it vibrant and dynamic so that they don't fall back into those former vicious feelings of emptiness. So attending meetings and engaging in acts of service is gonna be a lot more important than necessarily continuing to keep up with their therapist. But obviously there's overlap. So that's where you have to really uh, play it by ear and fine tune 
what what things are going to look like. But but the idea in a nutshell is that you really take their causation and you create a treatment plan that revolves around it and an aftercare treatment plan, which mirrors and synchronizes some of the work that you've been doing so that you have this holistic continuum of care. And for the circumstantial addict, I mean, you, you really have to, you know, Einstein famously said that uh, the definition of an idiot is somebody who does the same thing over and over again and expects different results. So we really wanna make sure that we assess not just the technical circumstances, but the emotional context and the relational context behind those circumstances to ensure and to maximize the opportunity the, the, the opportunities of making sure this doesn't happen again i love it I, I absolutely think it's the right approach you know at circle social we always say you can't help someone get out of addiction unless you understand how they got into it and i think that's exactly what you guys are doing here so as we kind of go back to tms and ketamine and these other complementary treatments um, how do you guys look at that so how do they the patient comes in how do you end up directing the patient to the appropriate care or integrate these other treatment modalities into their care plan so with regards to all of them, the doctor or the prescribing psychiatrist has to be the one to make that recommendation. And depending on certain nuances of their story, of what they're presenting with and their symptoms, um, any of those alternative methods and interventions will be more favored or more preferred. That's, that's as a whole. So it's very, it's very much done with, you know, here, here are these alternative methods and interventions, but ultimately you're going to, the, the, the psychiatrist and the clinical director are going to be working together to, to best explain to you the advantages and what the, you know, the potential perks are of these given interventions, but then ultimately they will be prescribed and signed off on by the medical and clinical team. Are there general categories? So I know like ketamine is often used for like treatment resistant depression, for example. So are there buckets or symptomology that people come in that tend to go towards neurobiofeedback versus TMS versus ketamine? Neurobiofeedback, it deals with depression as well as anxiety because it helps reduce certain uh, neuropathways that uh, are, are overly stimulated and resulting in, in feelings of anxiety. And the EMDR is really primarily used for trauma. But uh, I, I want to just take a pause for a second. A lot of these interventions, we are promoting them strongly at what we call the second half or the second phase of treatment. At least out in California, what we're finding is that the insurance companies are authorizing less and less dates for each year or two. Um, and they're essentially starting to see the detox residential component here as more of a stabilization period. They're not going to use those words, but ultimately that's sort of the insinuation and the message that's being conveyed in terms of the medical necessity that will justify those 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 days and the, that level of care. So it's no longer the inpatient 30-day model where you're going to come and we're going to do a lot of deep work and we're going to try to you know, put you on, on proper footing that you can walk away armed with uh, motivation and emotional health and wellness and purpose to be able to you know, conquer your addiction. What I'm seeing, and you know, out here at least, is that this is largely, a, you know, a stabilization period. But what we like to add into that stabilization is not just dealing with the detox and the post-acute withdrawal symptoms, but more importantly, deep diagnostics, getting into the discovery model assessment, trying to fashion and craft a truly customized master treatment plan to then be implemented in lower levels of care. And it's at those lower levels of care that we're actually providing. The TMS and the neurofeedback 
and the EMDR. I, I referenced earlier that the EMDR is really appropriate when there's emotional stability. So a lot of the RTC, the residential level of care, is doing this deep diagnostic and explaining to the client you know, what these potential uh, modalities and interventions are and what would be most appropriate, and then putting that all into effect at the lower level of care of PHP-IOP. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So they're, they're kind of a step down in the way that you guys currently use them in your continuum of care. Do you start them on any of these treatments while they're at the residential or you know, PHP-IOP level, or is it a completely separate kind of office space and entity? Now, we actually combine them within our treatment, the neurofeedback and the EMDR. And then as far as the TMS, so we actually provide it to our clients, but it's our, but it's our, our doctor, you know, operating, uh, providing those services on, on a separate basis, but within the confines of our treatment. I, I, you know, I'll just say one little point about all of those alternative methods. And it, it, there's something very profound that each of them are trying to accomplish in their own unique way, but with the ultimate goal of being the same. So I'll tell you just a quick analogy to make it sort of easy for the layman to understand. You, you have a deer who is thirsty and it takes a certain path to the riverbank every single day. And that path becomes you know, convenient. It becomes well-trodden on. And that's just what it knows how to do because it's done it for so long. And then one day, a tree falls on the path, and besides for the obstacle of the tree, there's a lot of splinters which can hurt the, fit, the feet of the deer. And you would think that, you know, given those dangers, there's so many other alternative paths that it can create and take to get to the same destination, but it doesn't because this is the path that it knows. And that's really the power of familiarity. So in a certain sense, the brain operates in a very similar manner that when certain pathways have been formed, however toxic and however self-sabotaging those thought patterns, those feelings that those anxieties may lead to, terrible, you know, disruptive behaviors, but this is what it knows best. And that's what these interventions are primarily seeking to undo, is to undo those patterns and to reverse the path of familiarity, which is taking them into dangerous waters. And, you know, when, when, I, when I started to uncover this, it, it, it resonated so strongly with me because what you have is a lot of times folks who have gone to RTC treatment and they're in a very healthy space for a week or two, and then out of nowhere, they relapse. And that relapse is not just a temporary distraction or departure from all the good work that they've done. What they do is they then identify with that relapse and it becomes enormously discouraging to get back on the right path because it's almost like whatever I'm going to do, whatever good work I'm going to accomplish, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, whatever I've, I've, I've invested into this, it can all go away in an instant because of that experience that I've had. And what this analogy, what these patterns really teach us is that at times we favor instinctively the path of familiarity, not because we really desire that path or not because it's a part of our values and it's aligned with our integrity. It's just because if you act responsively or react in a reactionary way, the familiarity, the security blanket of familiarity will sneak its way in there. But mindfulness and the ability to create a pause between stimulus and response and the more aware we are of what's going on inside, the greater the ability to just stop that cycle of familiarity. 
So that's really what a lot of the RTC with these deep diagnostics and also being in this environment of 24 seven monitoring and support for sobriety helps them undo that familiarity at the behavioral level. These alternative methods help undo that familiarity at the neurological level. And then they're primed and equipped to really approach talk therapy with sort of re-energized motivation and receptivity to be able to undo that familiarity at the social psychological level. Yeah, I think that's good. I I think a lot of people don't realize like the power of of the unconscious brain on thought, you know, and that there's this whole element of pattern recognition and then habitual action that does not come up to the level of consciousness, right? And so it drives a lot of behavior, you know, if you look at like whatever you want to call it, like system one, system two, if you're looking at Daniel Kahneman's work or someone else. But there's really a lot of detail around the fact that the brain takes a lot of energy. You know, it's like 2% of the body mass, but it uses 20% of all energy consumption during the day. So the brain is always trying to minimize, you know, the amount of energy it's expending just from a survival basis, right? Because less energy you expend, the more likely you are to be able to do things, whether it's run away from a tiger or go get food, right? You know, and so you have these habituated patterns that you get stuck in, and it's just energy conservation at the end of the day. And also people don't realize, but neurons fire in networks, right? And so it's just a pattern of firing. And so like, even if you're moving your hand down in front of you, you're not just having a command where the network fires and it says, oh, I'm moving my hand down. You're pre-firing all these neurons ahead of that, you know, with the expectation of that you're not going to hit something or you're going to hit something depending on what you've visually seen, you know, in the environment. And so even in a a behavior pattern, you're doing the same thing. The neural network fires, it's firing in advance. And that's why we have that feeling like we have to complete the action because we've kind of started the process of firing the neural network. We want to complete that process because that's a pathway that we're used to. And so if you can do anything, you know, to change those pathways and then make a new pathway, the habituated pathway, you know, that's where you're going to be able to eventually find recovery or freedom from various issues. So when you look at like TMS or neurofeedback, you know, I know that obviously you're not the, the psychiatrist or anything, but I'm wondering if you've had those conversations or if you kind of have any information on what exactly happens in the brain so that those networks are firing differently? Do you have insight at that level at all? So, I mean, practically speaking with TMS, so when you look at the neuroactivity and there's the section of the brain that is supposed to be producing the chemicals that induces, um, you know, the joy and optimism, and you see literally an absence of all activity on that front, and then through sustained and continued magnetic stimulation induced from the machine, the TMS machine, after 20 or 30 sessions, you see it start jump-starting. I mean, the, the, I would almost imagine it to uh, compare it to, you know, your battery dying. And then, you know, somebody gives you a, gives you, you know, connect his car to your car, the old-fashioned old way, you know? Um, and, and, and these are not necessarily methods that are intending to uh, comprehensively deal with all the challenges. It has to be clear. That's why they, they I always use the word complementary. So a lot of the alternative methods are complementary. What they do is, first and foremost, they help you position yourself in a framework of mind where you can approach your treatment without the baggage and the heaviness of the symptoms of depression. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to undo your own handcuffs, right? You want to get better, but you're still suffering from those symptoms and you still don't have the necessary constitution and clearness of mind to be able to approach treatment in a very thoughtful way. And treatment itself is an arduous task. It's a, 
it's 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 uh, it's empowering, but you also have to be able to be vulnerable, and you have to be able to go to places that you might instinctively want to run from. So, what this a lot of these alternative methods, what they're intending to do is bring you to sort of a status quo where now you can approach uh, talk therapy and other holistic interventions with at, at a fair starting point. So it should be it should that, that that's something that I feel is not often emphasized enough where people look at it as sort of a magic pill and there really is no magic pill in behavioral health because what happens is you know because of those symptoms so certain behaviors are, are taken and those those behaviors end up impacting the people you love and the place that you work at and there's a lot of wreckage that accumulates along the path because of those disorders that even once you're able to bring yourself to sort of a you know a fear of starting ground you still have to be able to repair and mend those relationships. You might have to steer away from toxic ones. You might have to get rid of codependent ones. You might have to uh, you know, change your occupation to something that fires you up to wake up in the morning with excitement, uh, for, you know, to find some purpose in your life. But it, it, they are ultimately all interconnected and they don't really have the type of sweeping you know abracadabra magical transformation that that's that's i think uh, it would be an overpromise to portray it in that light yeah i, I think that's definitely you know appreciated because I, I think we do sometimes have a tendency especially just kind of in i'd say in the u.s in general to rely on um, healthcare as a, a some kind of immediate fix right can you come in just fix what's broken and the reality is that mental health while we can have positive interventions and support and coaches and medications, at the end of the day, you still got to go to the gym and do the work. You know what I mean? Really good treatment program allows that support system long-term. So when you're looking at these different modalities that you've got, do you have any information? Like, what are you seeing with patients? What seems to be more effective? Do you have any research around which modalities are more effective? Absolutely. I mean, there's really no rocket science in terms of certain modalities um, being the, 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 the be an end all solution. As we've been talking at length, it, it has very much to do with the individual, their temperament, their story, and what they've experienced. But we have seen overall three modalities that um, they're, you know, they're, they're spoken of as separate modalities, but when they form together in a harmonious fusion, their impact is extraordinary. Uh, and that is the CBT, narrative therapy, and DBT. And I'll elaborate a little bit on where we sort of see the intersectionality of these three. A lot of folks who have been using, they are coming more often than not with a distorted way of seeing the world. A lot of distorted thought processes ranging to paranoia, people being out to get them, what life really should look like, what sort of you know, criteria, risky behaviors should be, uh, you know, avoided at. And you, you sort of see uh, a, lo a lot of their rational thought process being hijacked, hijacked by, uh, you know, an alternative way of thinking, which is not rational. So first and foremost, you, you have to be able to deal with that, you know, block. There's a blockage there. And uh, so cognitive behavioral therapy very much helps with that. But you what we have found is that you have to take a little bit more of an ambitious approach, which is instead of trying to inspire them to rethink their own thoughts, you have to pause for a second and really ask them to take a bird's eye view 
on a lot of what's going on inside them internally, which that has to do with more of the dialectical behavioral therapy, which is emotional regulation, but being in tune and identifying what those feelings are. So we call it what versus why. A lot of times you ask why in therapy and why did this happen to you? Why do you behave this way? Why don't you do this? Why do you have these relationships in your life? And the why is begging for a subjective answer, which takes them further into their head and sort of enshrines and perpetuates the distorted thought processes. The what is not a judgmental question because why is laden and embedded with uh, you know judgment in the very nature of the question. You know, the, the why is saying that there's something that I don't understand about you. And depending on the severity of the why, that will determine how judgmental the question is. But the what is a more objective approach in which they're encouraged to sort of see themselves for the first time in a way where they're not being defensive. Their amygdala, their fear is lowering, is lowered. So they're more open to being authentic and vulnerable. And that allows them to assess feelings, to assess behaviors, and to ask themselves, you know, what need is not being met in your life that you have felt that this life destructive behavior would be meeting that need? What need is that? And so you ask these what questions, which a lot of them have to do with, you know, DBT and help subsequently with distorting those, uh, with, 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 uh, undoing those distorted thought processes. And then, you know, that, that has to do with the, the narrative therapy as well, where they're able to sort of grab their life by the horns and be a captain of that ship because they have a proactive role in their own narrative. and They don't have to buy into the way others have been speaking about them or viewing them or society or the way some of their early self-diagnosis or self-imposed thoughts about themselves, which have been, you know, enshrined and, 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 and embedded for so many years, they don't have to buy into that. So it's a very empowering process when you combine these three modalities together, where they're able to sort of see things objectively and clearly, perhaps for the first time in their lives, and taken out of that fog, they're able to see where their goals are and how to get to them in healthy ways. It's almost like, you know, just on this last point, MapQuest versus GPS. If you, for all those who remember MapQuest, if you, if you only are following MapQuest and you take one turn wrong, you're lost. But when you you sort of see the more holistic approach and you're looking at the entire map, you see even if you miss one turn, you can, you can, uh, you can. There are other ways to get there, and that's a lot of what we, you know we're talking to them about, which is there are legitimate needs that are not being met in your life, and in your own convoluted way, you're getting. You're meeting those needs in dangerous ways. But if you understand and identify that need and you identify that there are other healthier routes to, to fill that need, you may never have to go there. And, and, and that it's, it's, it's such an, a powerful, you know, and this has to do you know, with a lot of simple mindfulness, breaking the habit loop. But so often we talked about, you know, the reactionary instinctive way of living. And I think the numbers are crazy that up to 90% of the, the actions we take on any given day are instinctive and reactionary. So breaking that habit loop and pausing between the stimulus and the response and asking ourselves, what are we feeling 10, 20 times a day really gets us in tune with ourselves, restores our equilibrium and puts us at the driver's seat as opposed to being a you know hapless victim of reactionary circumstances. 
And then where do you see like the research fitting in with TMS or neurofeedback? Like how do they connect to that, expand upon that component of therapy? So the, the TMS and the neurofeedback really help at the neurological level and really help just put them at an equal footing of uh, equal, equal playing field. And I think that the TMS and neurofeedback really help predominantly with those who have more of a chemical imbalance. But there are so many others where that's not really what they're struggling with. They're just struggling with themselves getting in the way of them, getting in the way of themselves in terms of their, 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 the way they're perceiving phenomena, the way they're reacting, and the way they're relating to certain circumstances in life in a, in a, in a, in a, in a significantly detrimental way to their, to their wellness and to their ultimate goals and objectives versus the TMS and the neurofeedback really have to do with less of the, the folks who are suffering from circumstances and distorted thinking, but more from just, you know, chemical imbalances at the neurological level, which are leading to a lot of uh, symptoms of depressive disorder and anxiety. So it's, 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 uh, they, they do complement each other, but they also do have distinct, unique demographics of which type of clients would benefit from, from, from this or over the other. Okay. And so you talked a little bit about billing and, you know, the payer perspective of them definitely supporting step-down services and aftercare. And I mean, I've had those very direct conversations with, you know, as heads of SUD for a couple of the bigger payers and, you know, they've, they're very blunt that, you know, they're, they would be happy to not pay for residential um, in the vast majority of cases um, because they just don't feel it's as effective. And additionally, I think they just really see the need for long-term care right? And that long-term care outside of a, a residential kind of high cost setting. So looking at like reimbursement, how, how what do these modalities look like from a, a billing perspective? Are they fee-for-service? Are they bundled? Are they value-based? And then how do you look at them in terms of, um, I guess, total revenue? Are, are they incremental revenue? Can they can be a standalone office with revenue? Like how, how do you guys approach it from a business model? So the correct way to to approach it from a business model is to really provide them in a third-party manner, but a legitimate third-party manner where you have your clients, but if you do create a third-party entity and it's properly staffed, and then you utilize the clients that are within your care and you present it to them, and if they're interested, they that you provide those services. But um, they are they are able to be billed separately um, those services, it's, it's, it's sort of like the way uh, substance use disorder was right after Obamacare. So it's sort of like a little bit new and uh, it's vague. It's not very concretized from an insurance standpoint, but they are recognizing them as legitimate services. Uh, they are largely uh, you know, FDA approved and they're evidence-based treatment. So there's nothing speculative about them, but uh, the processes of how much they're going to authorize the specific reimbursement rates, they vary greatly given this early sort of infancy stage uh, of these services. So like a couple of specifics. So I know like TMS, for example, is covered under a lot of in-network contracts these days. Does that go for neurofeedback or ketamine or other modalities as well? Yes, but for some of them, the authorization becomes a complex process that if you're not familiar with, really hamper your ability to do this uh, on the operation side and that has to do with you know them having failed with traditional psychotropic medication before this alternative method would be uh, authorized so they had to have been on antidepressants two or three times 
and that have been documented and that to have not been effective for insurance to say we're going to actually authorize this alternative route in the hope that this will be the solution. So there are nuances with regards to the authorization, but as a whole, these services are covered on a separate fee-for-service basis if done by uh, a separate medical group. Okay, so uh, so the MPI number that's being used is either the providing doctor or... To be, it would have to be a different, a different entity, and uh, whether it's the same doctor or a different doctor, it would have to be um, done under the doctor's MPI and... You know, it, it would have what's what's not going to be, uh, you know, accepted or what will be frowned upon is if a treatment center in and of itself tries to uh, bill for those same services in addition to the daily bundled rate of residential or PHP. That's not something that the, the insurances want to see. That's interesting. Is that is that because if you had it in residential, they would assume that you should just be incorporating it into that? daily reimbursement rate they they sort of look at they they sort of look at the bundle daily rate as you know this is what we're going to pay for your services whatever is a part of your program if you want to include these services in your program great we encourage it but that's we're not going to pick up the rate as a result of that um and in fact in fact even at a third party level a lot of these services like the tms will have a very hard time getting authorization for even if it's by a third party because the insurance companies are saying if we're paying this fee for this client to be in a 24-7 supervised, monitored environment with clinical medical services, we don't want other third parties coming in there and billing us on top of that. You know, this is we want this treatment center mm-hmm. to be the comprehensive solution during those days, during those authorizations of this daily bundled rate. It's really at the lower levels of care where there's more of an openness on the insurance, uh, on the insurance side of things to be able to provide the clients with other you know, critical uh, alternative uh, methods and intervention. Oh, that makes total sense. And so is there an expectation from the payers that there's also complementary behavioral health or can you do these standalone? I feel that that's their mistake. They, they look at these interventions in a sort of short-sighted way where they're thinking this might be the solution and they do not regulate or mandate that this be done with other interventions and methods and that this be coupled with therapy sort of to bring this home and to properly integrate because that's the key word integration if it's not integrated into your life it's uh it's almost like an ayahuasca experience great so you had this epiphany and you had this paradigm shift but that's just what it's going to be some one-time epiphany epiphany and paradigm shift but it's never going to really impact and uh you know enhance and transform the quality of your life and the quality of your relationships and your daily sort of equilibrium and they're not seeing that as of yet i guess it makes sense right i mean from from my point of view i mean to again to create a new neural network or pathway you have to actually engage in the behavior right you can't just do tms i mean so tms might reopen up some receptors that were closed off you know for desensitization purposes but it's not going to create a new pathway per se it's true and it's the size, I feel like it's the, it, yeah, if you have an open line there, you should be, it's the same mistake I feel that they make with regards to authorizing so little days of RTC, of residential care, because in their minds, that's the more expensive bundle daily rate, when internally, and I feel like this is a general statistic as well, it's beyond clear that the longer a client is in residential, the stronger the chances of sobriety are, and the less likely they're going to relapse and half and insurance will have to foot the bill for all of this recidivism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I, I've been advocating this for a long time, but I just feel like at this point it's on us, you know, the, the payers clearly aren't going to take the, the incentive or the, yeah, take the initiative to run the data. So it comes down to the behavioral health providers to track the data then present and say, Hey, look, you know, 10 days versus 20 days got this outcome and we're getting there, right? We're making a lot of progress forward, but I think until that happens, the payers are probably not going to relent too much. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an unfortunate sort of very strict, like P&L's actuarial analysis without taking into account the humanity of it. And I'm not talking on a philanthropic compassionate level, just the fact that we're dealing with humans, you know, Silicon Valley has come up with algorithms for almost everything in life and they're able to predict the future. But one thing that they haven't been able to do is create like the, the, the solution to marriage. <laughs> you would think they know so much about our lives <laughs> and, you know, they know more about us than our parents do, than our family members do, than our children are, you know, it, it's they, because of how much privacy they're tapped into. Our preferences, why can't they match us with the perfect algorithm with the perfect soulmate but there's a human touch that cannot be replicated that behavioral health is not like medical health in that sense you have there's there's a you're dealing with a, a very complex composite of so many different variables and, and that's why uh you know just being in that environment is is, is helpful in the rtc setting so you know from the pnls it might not look like the most strategic thing in the in, in you know in the, in the in the here and now but when you see the bigger picture you know there's no question yeah, agreed. Uh, one of the challenges with, I think, behavioral health has been the reductionism that exists in it, whereas it is exactly to your point. I mean, it's very nonlinear, right? There's a, a vast amount of variables that interplay with each other in very complex ways. And so you're just never going to be able to find a one-to-one -one causation in, in a lot of situations or being able to predict with high degrees of accuracy for, for a lot of behavioral health, com health outcomes, especially as you get long-term, right? Maybe in the right. short term. But in the long term, there's just too much variability right. going on. So go, going back to the reimbursement real quick. So you said fee-for-service. Have you done anything around bundled rates or value-based care? Have you guys seen anything like that from a reimbursement standpoint? No. In fact, when we bring it up, there's usually like total, um, I, don't want, I don't want to say cynicism, but it's not met with, oh, you provide that service? Sure, we'll negotiate with you taking that into account. It's, it's We have not found that experience at all. Uh, what about just startup costs uh, for like TMS or neurofeedback machine? Like how expensive are they? How many staff do you need to take care of them? So the TMS machines tend to be more expensive, uh, anywhere from 80 to 100 plus thousand. And you're able to lease them, but the, the, the cost of the actual machine is, is pretty pricey. And the neuro the neurofeedback um, you know the machines the equipment tends to be a lot cheaper, but you could also lease them as well. And then you really have facilitators who work with the clients on the technical side, work work through the work through the process with them. And like anything, you know the experience is really what you make of it. So it could be done with with people who are not only skilled on the technical side of connecting you know the machine to the to the brain and uh, going through the session with them, but there is, there, there is also a therapeutic component, especially with the neurofeedback, helping them uh, in that process and sort of making that experience a lot more therapeutic than just, uh, you know, a technical uh, neurological intervention. But it doesn't have to be. You can have um, you can you can have folks who are just skilled on the technical side, um, and that's pretty much uh, 
and and you have to have the the, the recommendation, of course, by the uh, the clinical and medical teams for that. And in an average day, like what's the total number of patients that could go to and use neurofeedback or TMS? So that's interesting. The, the neurofeedback is more standardized. It's going to be anywhere between a half hour and an hour. With regards to the TMS, I don't fully understand the science myself to be able to explain this sort of stark contrast, but you have sessions which are typically 18 to 20, 22 minutes. You have another track of TMS, which actually takes as little as two to three minutes, however wild that sounds. And from an efficacy standpoint, they have very similar results. Thus far, insurance is treating them the same. Because we're at the infancy stage of this being rolled out, nationally and uh, being practiced uh, on thousands of clients and patients. So I don't know that right now there's going to be a lot of distinctions made at the payer level, but with time that will happen. What about time frames? Are, are people coming in during the workday or do you have to like be open evenings and weekends? When do people actually come people in? People come in, people come in, especially when, the, when you consider like a TMS session to be that short, the entire process in and out could be under a half hour. And the, the amount of sessions vary, but you're talking anywhere between 20 to 30 sessions and there's uh, a midpoint evaluation uh, assessment session. But, but people come in, uh, you know, during the daytime, people really feel the effect of it. And there is a great receptivity to, uh, to the treatment resistant uh, track, to the, these alternative methods, whether it's the placebo or they're actually really feeling it so, so quickly especially with the, uh, the Spravato people actually, I feel it right, right on the spot, but the Spravato is something different with the ketamine because that's a longer sort of uh, process. They, the, the, whether it's intranasal and that sort of uh, um, takes a second, they have to be in a monitored environment by nursing for a couple of hours post the, uh, the intranasal uh, Spravato. But um, people are, they're, they're really feeling the effects of it and uh, that keeps them coming back for more. What about in terms of the staff? Is there a special licensing or a certification that's needed to run these machines? Can you train internally you can, on you that? Can, you can train internally on that, but there are certifications for neurobiofeedback. Uh, the TMS, it's more about you know being, being really adept and proficient in, in how it works, and you have to have the prescribing doctor present. So you can have a facilitator but the doctor is supposed to be there. So it's not, it's not a free for all. And it's not just about, you know, connecting the machine and putting it on the, the, the right section of the brain. You do have to have the, uh, the, the doctor. Okay. So there are certifications that the staff can get, but not necessary per se. What about at the facility level? Do you need any special licensing to run these machines? No, no. you're operate, you're operating under, under a doctor's MPI. This is under a psychiatrist's uh, scope. Okay. With the, with the, with the, I mean, with the Spravato, it's a little different because you're providing the Spravato. So the doctor would also have to be approved at the pharmaceutical level. But uh, I, 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 as far as the future, I really think that these will become a lot more standardized. I think that at a certain point, once the outcomes are presented in which those who only, who only, uh, you know, sort of pursue these uh, alternative routes and methods show in the long, in the long term, not having success if it's not coupled with uh you know with traditional therapy then you know there will be a push for combining these two right now it's just you know it's just my thoughts or other people who are who are doing this who are seeing this um and it, it makes sense but I, I feel like over time 
they will be harmoniously included. And you might even have, uh, you know, a certain reality where insurances are saying we want the treatment centers to be providing this within the confines of the treatment. And, you know, maybe we'll add our rate to if the treatment centers were providing that. I, I sort of see it um, as, you know, where MAT used to be and where MAT is today. Sure. What about length of time? So I know like ketamine, I think is usually what, seven treatments, if I remember right. Is there yeah. a standardized length of time for TMS? Tre- TMS is about 20 to 30 sessions and the neurofeedback is some, some, somewhat similar, you know, closer to 30. Okay. And is there an average per week or like what time frame are they supposed to complete? Yeah, I mean, you in? could do them multiple times a week, uh, two, three sessions a week easily. Okay. So you mentioned, obviously, we've talked quite a bit about ketamine. You mentioned you want to kind of MDMA and some of the resource that's coming around there. And so obviously, this is a bigger talk topic, you know, for an, a whole entire podcast. But, you know, just kind of generally, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, psychedelics and some of the more recent uh, approaches to different medications within the treatment So I setting? can't really talk about psychedelics as a whole. But as I mentioned to you in our last conversation, I, I uh, hosted on our Discovery U podcast uh, a a doctor out of New York, Columbia University, who was doing MDMA clinical trials phase three, slated to be FDA approved at the end of 2023. And after having this sort of real in-depth conversation and doing some subsequent independent research on the matter, I've become enormously inspired by the prospects of MDMA because really talking about everything that you and I have been sort of hashing out, which is the alternative and the complementary, the MDMA becomes the ultimate sort of paragon for this fusion because what the mdma is it is a psychedelic it's a synthetically uh you know a produced set of chemicals which reduces the amygdala the fear and what happens in therapy so often is that it takes a hell of a long time for clients to feel comfortable to address certain parts of their life that they w- would otherwise like to bury under the rug they don't like how discussing those experiences and events or feelings makes them feel and that really complicates this organic process of talk therapy because the inability to address these issues in a frontal way um, severely hinders the uh, efficacy and the ability to, 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 to process it properly therapeutically and to be able to develop coping skills or to sometimes just uh, undo those, those mindsets and perspectives. Now, what MDMA does is it's, in, it, it, it's this incredible opportunity in a really supervised and monitored environment. The individual is given and afforded the opportunity to almost the way I see it, you know, jump through what might take a year in traditional talk therapy and be able to achieve that in two or three sessions with the MDMA dose because they have no qualms about really just opening up about some of their deepest and sometimes subliminal subconscious fears and insecurities and traumas that, you know, in, in other instances could take a really long time for them to get to that comfort level. And in some cases, they may never have the courage to confront these realities or these sentiments, given our sort of built in wired defense mechanism, not to put ourselves in a position that we potentially can get hurt in. So the MDMA is really the ultimate fusion of a psychedelic allowing somebody to exponentially increase the chances of talk therapy really being effective and providing a a life-changing experience. 
Huh, very interesting. It's not a path I've really done a lot of research on. It definitely sounds interesting. So it's so different from everybody sort of couples psychedelics in one broad tent, including ayahuasca and psilocybin. And I can't talk about those other arenas because I'm not familiarly, I'm not, I'm not sufficiently familiar with them. But what I can say is that they're very different in the sense that MDMA is really done within the the beautiful confines of a clinical therapeutic environment and integration is a hallmark feature of mdma a part of that process is after the doses after those sessions is is sitting down with the same therapist and really unpacking and processing all the information that was conveyed and communicated during those mdma dosage in few sessions and being able to deal with that in a proper responsible environment versus having a one-time you know, sort of really inspiring peak moment experience, but then how does it really apply into my day-to-day traffic life? So we've got quite a bit of ground here. As a provider, I might want to potentially add this into our continuum of care or aftercare practices. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about? Any final thoughts on your end? I mean, I think that ultimately we're doing a lot of the same things in behavioral health, but it's not necessarily the modalities, they, those are very important, but it's really the spirit and the bedside manner and the empathy that the presiding clinicians and techs and nurses and doctors exhibit that really dictate and determine the, the bulk of the efficacy. Um, the client feeling that somebody gets me, is not judging me, and there's a safe space and they feel the opportunity to, uh, to be receptive and inspired and to perhaps find their purpose and to be able to address you know, their gut-wrenching issues in this loving atmosphere really becomes uh, one of the, the hallmark distinguishing features of whether you're a successful treatment center or not. And that has to do with uh, qual- you know, competent, compassionate staff who are doing this, not because it's a job or a career, but it, they, you know, they feel it's their calling and that expresses itself in every treatment episode and every day at work. And that's something that's overlooked very often. Okay. Well, I really appreciate the time, JD. It was really helpful. Um, Like I said, it's a topic we haven't explored before on the show. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you, learn more, get in touch with um, one of the organizations that you and Elliot are building, what would be the best way to do so? So our websites are probably the best way to find us. Our chemical dependency track, dual diagnosis is all under the banner of Renewal Health Group or Renewal HG. Dot com. Our primary mental health organization is Montier Behavioral Health. That is MontierBH.com. Montier is, a, is actually a Latin word for ascending, and it's spelled M-O-N-T-A-R-E-B-H.com. And then our acute care organization is a Zenith Behavioral Health, ZenithBH.com. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where you can find us. And um, you know whether we can help you ourselves or steer you or help provide some resources, that's, that's what we do, and, and we love it. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time. And for all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.